Uh, we're going to talk about, try to uh, cover steps, uh, the end of step four through step nine at this session. And um, again, I just really want to stress this because it's a difficult thing sometimes when you're hearing a guy talk about his personal experience with the stuff. It's, uh, it is hard for me at times to not take other people's experience as an indictment of my experience. That just because I've done this this way, this is just what I've done. You know, um, it's like that lady up in Vancouver who, uh, you know, God got her out of L.A. and, and left me there, you know, and, uh, and, and she's staying sober that way, and I couldn't. If I, if I actually saw the deliberate hand of God in misery, I wouldn't be sober. This is just me. Uh, um, if I saw, I, I think we've been uh, given uh, free will, and I think we've been given our own uh, sort of our autonomous lives, and if I thought that God was up there going, uh kill his horse and, you know, open the earth under those people and squash that baby. And I, I, I'd be out of here. I would have been out of here a long, long time ago. Um, we talked about resentments and the defects of character that feed them uh, in our book. And in Chapter 5, it describes three columns. I'm resentful at the cause and effects my. And then uh, some guys call it the fourth column. There's no description of a fourth column in the big book. It just says, when we saw our faults, we listed them. Uh, where were we? Dishonest, self-seeking, and, and uh, self-centered, and uh, we, we, uh, uh, we make a list of these defects of character. And the way I was instructed to do it was to make the list of defects of character on a separate page, which I'm going to talk about when I, I uh, talk about Step 6 and 7 uh, this morning. Um, and then we we're uh, asked to do a fear list, not in connection with personal resentment, and then we are asked to do a sexual inventory. The, uh, as far as I understand it, the uh, instructions on the sexual inventory are on page 69. We're asked to write about seven different points which I talked briefly about last night. It says, we got this all down on paper and looked at it. Where have I been selfish, dishonest, or inconsiderate? Where have I unjustifiably aroused jealousy, suspicion, and bitterness? What should I have done instead? Again, not what could I have done. What could I have done? What I did. That's what I could have done. What should I have done? That's a whole different deal. And it says here we got this all down on paper, which kind of tells me that's not a list. That's sort of like a little story about what happened. Now, when I say story, I use that word very specifically. My sponsor didn't care if the moon was full and if it was a Chablis with a blush, you know. He didn't give a crap about that. What he cared about was a story about how I had done these, how I had offended in these seven different points. Right? I uh, left my wife and children for a lady when I was working down in Texas. Who were the people who, had, who were hurt? They went at the top of the page. The woman in Texas was hurt, my wife was hurt, my children were hurt, and I was hurt. All the names went on top of the page. Who was hurt? Where have I been selfish? I didn't much care how it affected my family. I only cared about my sexual needs and my emotional needs when I was down in Texas. Selfish, dishonest. I lied to my wife about it initially. I also lied to the woman down there about my intentions and about whether or not I was going to be there permanently, and I certainly lied to myself about it. Inconsiderate, selfish, dishonest, inconsiderate. I didn't really much care how it affected my kids at that point. I really didn't much care how I was rearranging and destroying all these other lives as a result of my sexual needs and my need to be loved and cared about. Where have I unjustifiably aroused jealousy? Pretty clear here. I aroused jealousy in everybody, in the other woman, in my wife, by bouncing in between both houses, by not being able to make up my mind by being full of that self-pity of why me, why do I have to be in love with two women, oh why me, why me, I don't care, and uh, uh, I know we're taping this, but I'll, I'll go ahead and say this, I don't care how big your penis is, there's only so large a brain that's going to fit in there, and, and, uh, um, 
and and you you might be a large man. You might be a large man, but I, it just is only so big a, a mind that is going to get in there. Um, and and when I would get into that self pity and stuff, you know, uh, a story I used to hear a lot. I don't hear much anymore. I used to love it when I was new about uh, an alcoholic. Uh, uh, a psychotic and a normal person, if they walk through a door and they all get hit in the face by a two-by-four, the uh, normal person will never walk through the door again. The psychotic will walk through a couple of times, get hit a couple of times, and then stop. The alcoholic will walk through time and time again, hit flush with this two-by-four. Then one day he'll walk through and he won't get hit, and he'll go, well, I can wait. Uh, <laughs> the guy probably had to go for coffee, you know. He'll come back, he'll smash me, and I'll go on with the business of life. And uh, and my sexual inventory was a pretty clear indication of this. Jealousy, suspicion, well, everybody was always suspect of my motives. Was I going to come? Was I going to stay? Who was I going to wind up with? What was I going to do? My children were suspicious of everything by that time because they didn't know when I, where I was going to be living and, and what family I was going to select. And bitterness, well, the previous five had created the bitterness. I had made, embittered everybody with my insanity, my desire to control, and my, you know, uh, um, one of the most baffling, um, I think aspects of alcoholism is when I tell you I love you, I mean it. Now, what I do with that is can be a horrible thing. But uh, it doesn't mean I'm lying to you. It was quite often the truth over here. When I got closer to the drink, it got a little murky. And by the time I got to the drink, it was quite often an out-and-out lie. And I think we can say sex and relationships and a lot of other stuff can take the place of the drink. This is what I want. If you get in between me and what I want, you have to vanish. <clears throat> what should I have done instead? I should not have gone out with another woman while I was married. I should, if I had wanted to separate from my wife or end my marriage, I should have dealt with that separation uh, separately. I should not have made my children suffer because of my sexual needs, wants, and desires or my need to be cared for. I should have dealt with it honestly. Once I found myself in the situation, I should have see, gone after and to seek help. What, that's what I should have done instead. Now, that's a pretty amazing thing. I mean, that's a pretty amazing thing to be able to sit down and take a look at that. I had to do that sexual inventory. I had to do a sexual inventory against myself uh, for masturbating. Who was hurt? Me. All the time. Not that I had to stop masturbating, but I had to stop doing what I was doing the way I was doing it. 40 or 50 times a day. I had to stop. <laughs> I had to find a gray area. Um... And our book is pretty clear in the chapter to the family afterward. It talks about sex, and it talks about that uh, alcohol can be so stimulating um, that it might affect a man <laughs> adversely, and uh, and he might even wind up. Men tend to be impotent. Uh, I was impotent only if someone else was in the room. Uh, 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 <laughs> if I was alone, I was fine. Uh, unless the reason is understood, there may be emotional upset, I should say so. Uh, but it says uh, there should be no hesitancy in consulting a doctor or psychologist if the condition persists. Some of us had this experience only to enjoy in a few months a finer intimacy than ever. And I can tell you that my wife have, and I have a relationship that is uh, truly remarkable compared to the dis totally destroyed relationship we came in with. Um, I want to talk about this sexual relationship not only in terms of the fourth step and in the sexual inventory, not in terms only in terms of the fourth step, but in terms of later in my sobriety. About a year and a half ago, I had a, I really hit another bottom in my marriage, and uh, again, I realized that uh, I was scared of my wife. 
that I was scared of her, that I had a sexual uh, relationship that I did not find particularly exciting or interesting. I uh, was living in a situation, my wife hates television, where every time the TV was on, I felt like I was being treated poorly and, and being put down. Uh, and uh, I was living in a place that I wasn't enjoying living. And what happened is I did a sexual inventory about it. I wrote some inventory on it. And uh, what was clear to me was I had to do something I had really never tried to do. I had to sit down with my wife and I had to tell her, that I was totally dissatisfied with my home life and my marriage. And I said, she said, well, what, what are you talking about? I'm doing, and I said, do you understand what I just said to you? I said, I am dissatisfied with my participation in my marriage. I am not telling you that you're bad, that you're not having the right, you're not giving me enough sex. I'm not telling you anything about you. So well, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. I said to her the exact same thing my sponsor said to me about how to make amends. I said, I don't know, but I'm going to tell you that I'm uncovering it. I'm telling you that I am dissatisfied with my sexual, social participation in my marriage. And that, that opened it up. That at least opened the door up. It pried it open. And I had, man, I, I, you know, my prayer was, let me not blame my wife. Please, Father, help me to overcome a fear of confrontation. To tell her how I feel. How do I feel? I don't like my marriage. I don't like the way I walk into my house and how I feel. I don't like what happens to me when I want to watch a little television and turn my goddamn head off. I don't like it. I don't like the fact that when I'm trying to do stuff with my kids, I'm getting interrupted. I don't like the way this feels. But, 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 I'm not telling you what to do. I'm telling you how I feel. Now, the hook is, I gotta put my money where my mouth is. Cause if I say that, but then I punish her anyway, then I'm full of crap. Then I'm not doing it. Then I'm lying. Then I'm saying, but I'm not telling you what to do, but then I'll go be mean, I'll withhold myself, I'll get colder, I'll draw away, I'll make snide comments, then I'm full of crap. It, this is not easy, man. If it was easy, more guys would do it. I'm convinced of it, you know. And I sponsor enough guys to know that not many guys are. If I can overcome a fear of confrontation and tell you how I feel without telling you what to do, I can't lose. Now, I'm not saying that Nancy and I stay together. It has worked out that we have had a successful time together. But that could have very well not been true. But if I can do it clean, if I can do it with God, if I stay or if I go, if I can do it with God, I'm okay. I'm all right. doesn't mean I'm going to like it, but I'm okay. Um, <clears throat> so uh, that's uh, how I wrote my sexual inventories, and that has, in some of the way that I've used my sexual inventories uh, later on in sobriety, uh, I want to talk about resentments, defects of character, fears, and sexual problems. When we talk about step six and seven, uh, I'm going to actually kind of talk about some of the, the prayers and meditations and actions that I've been directed to take to get rid of them. <clears throat> um, step five, uh, which as far as I know is uh, our key to honesty, uh, begins on page 72. At the ed end of how it works, it says, <clears throat> We hope you're convinced now that God can remove whatever self-will has blocked you off from him. If you have already made a decision, the third step, right? If you've made a decision in an inventory of your grosser handicaps, the fourth step, you have made a good beginning. Just a beginning. That being so, you have swallowed and digested some big chunks of truth about yourself. And now, um, it talks about sitting down and reading this to another man and telling another man. Uh, a real, if you're new, uh, I'm sure this is a real exciting prospect for you. Uh, I, I know I was also very excited about the prospect of sitting down and telling another man uh, everything I had done. Um, 
they, uh, the guys who wrote the book say they, they wanted to mention some reasons you might want to do this. It says here, the best reason first, if we skip this vital step, we may not overcome drinking. <laughs> um, and in the previous chapter, in chapter five, they mentioned five times that if you don't stop drinking, you're going to die, that self will kill you, that you're going to die. No big thing, you just get to die. And uh, one of the most remarkable things to me about um, step five, uh, and about the fact that it does seem to be about honesty, about actually getting honest with myself, another human being, and with God. It talks about the double life that alcoholics lead. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was out there, I lied about everything. I lied if there was a lull in a conversation. I used to lie just to get things moving, just to keep things moving along. I talk about my years in the service. I've never been in the Army in my life. I mean, I would just get things going. I would criticize films and books I had neither seen nor read. I felt completely qualified to talk about them, even though I had not read the book or seen the film. Um, I lied about everything to everyone all the time. And yet, when my, my sponsor suggested that I put the defective character of dishonesty down on my, my character defect list, I felt like I had been hit by a brick. It felt completely horrible to me that I do this. Um, If I don't do this, if I don't sit down with a man, and if I don't, and, and, you know, I say to guys I give instruction in the fourth step, I always tell them, I say, you don't have to take your fifth step with me. I mean, i just tell you for me, I like that I took a fifth step with a guy who I still deal with because he knows my case, because he knows the trail, because he knows my history in certain situations. He can pretty much know when I'm kind of getting into murky areas which have been real kind of cloudy and unsuccessful for me. One thing I had to do when I came in Alcoholics Anonymous is I had to stay away from the women in Alcoholics Anonymous completely. And this was not because of something my wife had, had asked me. I had, I had sex with more women after I got married than before I got married. Um, I had uh, so uh, destroyed uh, my life and, um, and, and my marriage with this kind of behavior, it was real clear to me that part of my, my eighth and ninth step to my wife was I had to steer clear of the women in AA, not because of them, because of me. You know, and uh, this was some of the, the the honest things that I had to cop to. But it it talks about uh, more than most people. The alcoholic leads a double life. He is very much the actor. To the outer world, he presents his stage character. This is the one he likes his fellows to see. He wants to enjoy a certain reputation, but knows in his heart he doesn't deserve it. Now, on most of my resentments against myself, the defective character of low self-esteem pops up again and again and again. We're talking about character aspects. I'm so glad you brought that up today. Because the fact is, is that the opposite of any character defect is a character asset. That if I write down on my inventory that I have low self-esteem, when I go to God in steps six and seven, I'm going to find out what I need to replace that with, what I need to rely on with me. Sometimes guys say to me, this just hurts too much. It just, writing this inventory hurts too much. Telling you about this stuff hurts too much. And what I say to them is, Man, what happens when you go to the gym and you haven't been there for a while? What happens? It hurts. You're using muscles you've never used before or you haven't used them in a long time. Well, this is the spiritual gym. And it's going to hurt, man. If you go to the gym and you want big arms, you usually go to the guy with big arms and say, how'd you do that? And that's what we do in Alcoholics Anonymous. We find the guys with those big spiritual muscles and we say, hey, man, how did you do that? And it hurts at first. It says in our 12 and 12 that the touchstone of spiritual growth is is pain. And I agree with that, but I will tell you, I, I talked about this briefly with a guy yesterday. For me today, the touchstone of spiritual growth is quite often joy. 
I want more, man. And this stuff feels really good to me. And I'll, quite often I do more because it feels good. Not only because my back is up against the wall. I don't only surrender now out of extreme pain. A lot of times I surrender now because I'm happy, joyous, and free. And I want to feel it more. You know? Um, <clears throat> the inconsistency is made worse by the things he does on his sprees. Coming to his senses, he is revolted at certain episodes he vaguely remembers. These memories are a nightmare. He trembles to think someone might have observed them. I don't know about you, but has anybody... Uh, come out of a blackout and then had someone told him about all the good shit he did in the blackout. <laughs> well, you know, while you're in that blackout, you put money in the bank, you were nice to your kids, and you helped, you know, you helped the blind children. No, I never did anything good in a blackout, at least not that anybody has. And if you don't think you've had a blackout, how would you know? <laughs> so, uh, Two and a half pages, in the beginning of chapter six, we're told that we, uh, we must sit down with another man and we must acquaint him with all our shortcomings. In Bill's story, in the beginning of the book, again, he, uh, he talks about it and he did it in the first couple of weeks of, uh, of sobriety. He says, my schoolmate visited me and I fully acquainted him in the hospital and I fully acquainted him with my problems and deficiencies. And then we made a list of people I had hurt toward whom I felt resentment. Uh, so, uh, here he did, he kind of did it a little backwards kind of the fifth with the fourth or a little before the fourth and um and then it says something it's a pretty uh pretty intensive thing on page 75 it says we begin to feel the uh uh the nearness of our creator we may have had a certain spiritual belief but now we begin to have a spiritual experience i don't know for the guys who have had step five here we all seem to have different experiences i did not feel like a burning bush after i did my fifth step i didn't feel this big thing at all what I thought, and I didn't realize it at the time, I had begun to have a spiritual experience. I have had a spiritual experience as described in the appendix on spiritual experience in the book. I have had an experience, a spiritual experience of the educational variety slowly over a period of time. So, uh, I, uh, I acquainted my sponsor with this, and then on page 75, we have one page. Two steps for one page, steps six and seven. There is less written about them than any two steps in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, except for steps one and two, which I believe there's no clear-cut instructions on. There is one page, one page on steps six and seven, and yet they are the two longest chapters in the 12 and 12. Bill says these are the steps that separate the boys from the men. This is the stuff. This is the nitty-gritty. And yet we're given one page, and we're told to do it for one hour. And for me, steps six and seven have become the working template for my relationship with God. I want to uh, just briefly go through, you know, what I did with, with defects of character, because you see, it says in, in, in step six and, and seven, and it's an int- interesting thing, on the first page of chapter six, it says, it doesn't, it, it changes the, the way the step is presented, because the step reads, uh, admitted to God to ourselves another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. And here it says, we admitted to God to ourselves another human being the exact nature of our defects. That's the first cha- paragraph on the page in the chapter. So, how can I admit the exact nature of my defects if I haven't made a list of them? So if I've made a list of them, and for me, I write resentment number one, I'm resentful of my dad for dying. De- defect of character list number one. What are the defects of character that if God would remove this resentment against my father for dying would be gone? I'm greedy, I self-pity, I'm playing God. So when I go to do step six, and I admit this to my sponsor, the whole thing, I'm resentful of my father for dying, it affects my self-esteem, pocketbook, ambition, personal relations, and sex. I am plain God, filled with self-pity. I'm greedy. I admit that to my sponsor, to myself, to God, and to another human being. And in step six and seven, what am I going to take to God? Not the resentment against my father. 
I'm going to take the defects of character, without which there is no resentment. Father, please remove this self-pity. Father, please remove this playing God. Father, please remove this greed. What can I do to help you? What can I do? What service can I do to help you? This is the way I did six and seven on my resentments and defects. Step six and seven on my fears I already talked about in the last session. I asked him to remove the fear, to turn my attention to what he would have me be. What does he want me to do instead of being scared and then actually following the direction? Because sometimes I ask God for this direction and he tells me, and I go, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I say, you got anything else? You know, and they go, no. <laughs> and, uh, and then I'm still in pain. Right. <clears throat> Step six and seven for the sexual inventory is on the uh, bottom half, the last two paragraphs on page 69. It says, in this way, we try to shape a sound and ideal, sound ideal for our future sex life. We subjected each relation to this test. Was it selfish or not? And then on the bottom of the page, it says, and this for me is the meditation of steps six and seven. In meditation, we ask God what we should do about each specific matter. The right answer will come if we want it, not if we like it. <laughs> because again, I said, Father, what should I do about this? I hear the voice and I go, yeah. And, and then try to get a second opinion from the same guy. Uh, so these are some of the prayers and meditations that I have done in steps six and seven on, uh, uh, on my inventory. Now, I'd like to talk about later on in sobriety what has happened to me with steps six and seven and why I, t- I say to you that it's the template of my relationship with God. It says we go home, we go over this stuff for an hour, and we ask ourselves, on this one page, it says, we ask ourselves, have we done the first five propositions of this program thoroughly? Are we trying to make mortar without sand? Have we done them completely? Am I ready to move forward with step six and seven? And once I'm ready to move forward, and then I move on in sobriety, and some stuff goes away, and some doesn't go away. I have an eating disorder. I'm overweight. I'm resentful at myself for being overweight. I have problems in my marriage that I can't seem to resolve. I'm resentful at my wife. I'm resentful at myself. I have fear of financial insecurity. Some things go away and have not come back, and some things have lingered, and some things come and go. I'm resentful at Scott for being overweight. It affects my self-esteem, pocketbook, ambition, personal relations, and sex. A five-bagger for sure. What does this have to do with sobriety? Nothing unless you're going through it. Nothing unless you're going through it. It has everything to do with, for me, if it's something I hate myself for. All right? What are the defects of character that if God would remove, the resentment would be gone? I'm gluttonous. No, don't fight me on this. I'm gluttonous. <laughs> I'm self-serving. I'm serving myself. I'm not letting anybody feed me. I'm taking care of it. I'm impatient. There's no reason to assume this isn't going to get better. Everything else in my life has. It's just not happening on my spiritual pride. How dare a man of my spiritual caliber continue to have a problem? <clears throat> Stubborn. I keep writing about this. I keep repeating it. This is a defective characteristic I have to take to God. Okay, I take it to God, I ask for the removal, and then I sit down and have a cheesecake. So, obviously, obviously something ain't happening right. So, what is my trip? My trip is the first, step six and seven is my ticket back to the first five steps. Right? Sobriety doesn't mean I'm going to lose weight and stay skinny. Sobriety might mean I might just be comfortable being me. I'm playing God with myself. I'm arbiting the way that I look. I don't know what God's got in store for me. It's not necessarily that I do the next Calvin Klein commercial, something that's not coming up right now. Um, unless Calvin Klein comes out with a, a big and tall line. Uh, 
But it's my trip back to the first five steps. Okay, uh, this gluttony is killing me, Father. What can I do? Am I, have I not worked the first five propositions in this area? Because this isn't going away. Or if the sexual thing with my wife isn't going away. Or the thing at work that's driving me crazy. And I keep writing about it. I keep writing about it. God couldn't would if he were sought. Which means he can't and shan't if I don't. None of us can fully comprehend or define that power, which is God. So I'm going to seek him because I'm going to find him in the seeking. The process is what it's all about. So, in this area of gluttony, I say, Father, what, have I done the first five propositions in this area? Have I not really admitted that I'm powerless over the thing, that this thing, is my life unmanageable here? Or is it step two? Do I not really believe that God's going to take this? Is my God not big enough to handle this? Father, I, I know that you can keep all the atoms in the universe together, but I don't think you know about sex and food. So I will take care of sex and food. You keep the atoms together. When you work out the sex and food thing, get back to me on this, and we'll do it together. Or is it, or is it step three? Have I not really made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God and start finding out why? Or is it step four? Have I really not done a fully enough, full enough inventory? Or is it step five? Have I not really admitted everything I need to admit here? Where's the chink? Where's the hole? Are the first five propositions, if this thing keeps coming back, where do I have to expand? Is my God not big enough? If my God's not big enough, what can I do to make him bigger? What demonstration can I make? What service can I perform? What recommitment can I make to Alcoholics Anonymous or to spirituality to make my God a little bigger? A little bigger. Bigger than the parking God. A little bigger. Just a little stretched out. So, six and seven have been a tremendous help to me. To help me to be kind and loving to myself, to be patient with myself, to not see myself as some kind of spiritual or outright mental defective because certain things linger and continue to be a problem. As long as God could and will, if I seek him, as long as I'm seeking him, I'm okay. Now, some people talk about, I went to another 12-step program. I sought outside help. I went to it. I don't see outside help. I don't get that. That's just for me. This is all part of the same deal for me. As a result of step six and seven, if my God says, go to OA or go to therapy or do this, that's a direction, as a direct result of my working the six and seven step. I don't see it as exclusive to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I, I also don't know when people say, well, it's all the same thing. Eating, smoking, alcohol, well, to me it ain't. I'm allergic to these things. Normal people aren't allergic to them. Can you be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous if you're not an alcoholic? No. It's not my opinion. That's what the literature says. Bill Wilson in, in the pamphlet and his article um, about other problems says, are you, if you're an alcoholic, can you join AA? No, you can't. If you're a drug addict, you have other problems with a history of alcohol uh, addiction or involvement, can you be a member of AA? Yes, you can. And uh, so when I hear sometimes people say, well, it's all the same stuff, <laughs> man, it ain't all the same stuff for me. I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous because I am allergic to alcohol. I cannot drink. I take one drink and I want to borrow 20 bucks from you and have sex with your wife. And that's it, man. Normal people don't have a Manhattan and go right there. You know, that's where I go. So, again, six and seven have been my trip uh, back to the first five propositions in the book. And they have done more to sort of create my relationship, my give and take relationship with God than any of the other steps in a way. Um, steps 8 and 9, I believe, are, except for the uh, step 12 and, and uh, chapter 7, I believe there is more written about steps 8 and 9 than uh, any of the other two steps in the book. There's about eight and a half pages on those two steps. It's interesting that steps 6 and 7 have one page, barely one page, and 8 and 9 have eight and a half pages. And it's an interesting thing to me because <clears throat> they do more of... Uh, 
brainstorming for us in 8 and 9 than any other place in the book. They give you all these examples of how you can make amends and who you can go talk to and you can stand up in church and admit your wrongs and they, you know, talk about divorce and making uh, financial amends to the ex-wife and child support. They, uh, apparently, Dr. Bob Smith could not get sober until he worked 8 and 9, until he made the rounds. You know, he got sober with Bill for a month or two, went to an AMA convention, you know, went out for a pack of cigarettes and came back a week later completely inebriated. And apparently he could not acquire permanent sobriety until he made the rounds, came back, you know, admitting his wrongs to other people and making amends because he was scared. You know, we love it. We're scared to tell people we're other drunks. We've vomited in their living room, but we're scared to tell them that we we are drunks. And it wasn't apparently, uh, wasn't until Bob made these amends and, and worked eight and nine that he was able to actually acquire permanent sobriety. They, uh, they're pretty smart guys, these guys. Uh, they put this whole barrage. There's millions of promises throughout the book, but they put this whole barrage of really juicy, you know, it's like the club med of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's a spiritual club med, you know. You're going to know serenity. You'll know peace. You'll know freedom. You know, you'll know fear, uh, freedom from uh, fear of financial insecurity. All of this extraordinary stuff, and they put it right smack dab in the middle of step nine, man. And it says, before you're halfway finished with this phase of your development, you're going to know a new freedom. They didn't put it in the middle of step three. They didn't put it in the beginning of step two. They put it right smack dab in the middle of there. It's a real come on. You know, Bill was a great promoter. This guy, I don't know why he was on Wall Street. He should have been on Madison Avenue because he really, really knew how uh, to bring us out here. And I, um, and even though uh, these guys make a lot of suggestions on how to go about making amends, I was involved with a sponsor who just refused to tell me how to make amends. And... Some guys need to be told this. I know some sponsors sit down and they figure out how you're going to make amends. And I was with a guy, as I shared with you last night, who just refused to tell me. I'd say, well, what am I going to do with Nancy? How am I? He'd say, Scott, I don't know. That's between you and God. He would constantly push me back to God. And in a way, you know, we read today that if we uh, uh, start a man out on the steps during our first visit, he might blame us later for rushing him. And maybe for me, maybe my sponsor knew intuitively that if he told me how and it didn't work out, that I would have blamed him. I don't know. I don't know why he did it. But that's what happened. And the result was, was I got to make amends to my father in a way where I got to help some other people, and it expanded my life, you know, uh, to an, an, an extraordinary uh, extent. And um, uh, it says in step 10 again that the alcohol problem will just be removed. We won't be cocky. It'll just, we'll wake up one morning and it'll be gone. It's a war of attrition. We kind of surround the disease, you know, with this army and we starve it out. And uh, my grandmother was on my uh, eight step list. And uh, one day, I, what I like to do is I, I make my eight step list. And, and sometimes, let's say, I, I run into Gilbert on the street, and I, I, he's not on my step list, but I realize I, I need to give him an amends. I make amends, I go home, and I write his name down, and I cross it out, just to show myself I've done it. I like achieving, you know? So, so my eight-step list is kind of interesting. You know, it's got a lot of names that are crossed out, and I kind of see what I've done. And anybody I work for, I owe money to. If I work for you, I owe you money. I stole money from everybody I ever worked for. I just used to like to drop by and just operate the cash register for a couple hours. I just used to, I used to, and on my, on my, um, uh, inventory, it's, you know, the quality in 500 bucks, the red onion restaurant, 300 bucks, it's just boom, 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 boom. And I have called up these people, I call up, I work for, uh, Josephina's restaurant, I owed them 800 bucks, and I call them up and I explain that I'm a drug addict and I'm an alcoholic and I'm, my life depends on this, and I, and the guy said, 
you know, you know the joke that if you cross a bartender with a gorilla, you get a gorilla that steals. And, um, and I don't think he had a lot of people calling him up to make amends, you know. And the guy said, what? I said, well, I, you know, I owe you $800. And this, uh, the business no longer exists. I said, can I mail you the money? He said, well, do me a favor and give the money to whoever is helping you. <laughs> it was like, you know, what, what is this? I don't know if you guys have ever heard uh, June Guinan talk. I, and if you haven't, I, 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 you'll get an opportunity. She's an incredible, gives an incredible talk in AA. And one of the things I most uh, identified with June when she talked, when they told her she needed a big book, and she went into the Santa Monica Library and stole one. And uh, and uh, when she went went through, started working on her ninth step, she had to go and give him the book back, you know, buy a new book and give it back. And she walked into the Santa Monica Library, and the librarian said to her, "What is with you people? You all steal this book, <laughs> and then you come and give it back to us, you know." <laughs> And that was kind of like what it was like with this guy. What what planet is this from, you know? Um, and 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 then I've had, uh, you know, I've called up guys to make amends, and I've had them call me back and say, I've I've received your message. Please don't call again. Uh, I I made amends to my brother, and my brother wrote me back a letter saying, if you lived to be a million and you were sorry every day of that million years, you wouldn't even come close. And I read it to my sponsor, and I was, you know destroyed by it, and Don said, rip it up. And I ripped it up, and after I ripped it up, he said, you need to rip that up because you might reread that. I cleaned up my side of the street. I did a good job. I'm a good member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm a good dad, I'm a good husband, and I'm a good friend. You know? And uh, and again, I have, this, I have the gift of a sober, loving brother, and I'm able to give it away. I, I briefly talked about last night a a man who I sponsor who had a baby who got real sick real quick. And uh, I told you about the aunts and uncles that showed up at the emergency room and all this. And uh, my family was my family, but the family that I'm involved, I'm actively involved in Alcoholics Anonymous because of step eight and nine, because I really do firmly believe that once you start to make amends, once you start to get a bigger life, once you start getting off the first baseline and getting over into the grandstand and becoming part of the deal, and for me it wasn't until eight and nine that I really started to, because those memories, that awful, you know, black, horrible place, stopped coming up with the regularity that it was coming up, you know. Um, the night uh, that the baby got sick, I went back to my home group, which is called the Chapter 12 Ben Stag Meeting in Studio City, California. If ever you're down in Studio City, it's 7.30 on Monday nights, and geez, I sure would love to show you around and introduce you to the guys. We call it Chapter 12 because we kind of see Dr. Bob's Nightmare as the 12th chapter of the book. Never been able to figure out why they didn't make it the 12th chapter. 12 steps, 12 chapters kind of would have been kind of cool, but... I judge no man. And, uh, uh, and, uh, because we're kind of a group of Bills we, who are kind of aspiring to be Bobs, uh, we kind of liked, uh, what Bob's got to say and, 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 uh, we named our meeting after his story. And, uh, I went back to that night and I told the guys what had happened to Phil and his wife. And Phil's a working guy. If he ain't making money, he ain't, they ain't eating. And the baby was in intensive care and the, and the boys threw the basket around and they threw $900 in the basket. And I don't give a crap about the amount. I'm not talking about the money. I'm talking about the demonstration of the power of love and God in, in Alcoholics Anonymous. I went down to the hospital. And I gave Phil this, this bag of money, and he just, he was just completely overwhelmed. You know? And uh, one of my friends at the meeting said that night, he said, even if Cassidy, who was the baby, even if she dies tonight, think of all the men she's helped already. 
That's the power of God in Alcoholics Anonymous. Because we don't sit and we don't hit our knees and pray for Cassidy to get well. We pray for God's will. Now, if Cassidy gets well, that's fine with us. And she has gotten well. She's just absolutely perfect. She's wonderful. But this is the community that, for me, the eighth and ninth step has given me entree to. Because if I'm still carrying around that stuff, if I'm still blaming myself, if I'm still blaming others, if I have not made amends to the past, if I have not cleaned up the wreckage of the past and I'm able to move forward, first of all, I, you know, as I told you last night, I wouldn't have been in the hospital. I couldn't have gone. And Phil, Phil received all this love and he said to me the next day, he said, he's been sober for four years. Four years before, he threw a birthday party for himself and one guy came to it. And now, and, and now the guys do this, this kind of demonstration. Um, it's absolutely, absolutely remarkable. Uh, see, I talked about the trip back to the steps and the sexual inventory. I want to talk a little about, get into a little about step 10. When do we, we end this at about 11.59? Is that the, the temperature? Okay. I want to uh, talk about uh, step 10 a little bit here before we open the floor for uh, questions again. Um, <clears throat> the promises of step 10 in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous are absolutely remarkable. It says basically three big things for me in the description of step 10. It says sanity will have been restored, the alcohol problem will be removed, and I will know the correct use of self-will. Where's the beef? <laughs> Here's the beef. That's unbelievable. Sanity will have been restored. I won't be living, uh, you know, with this head dashing around my house planning my death. Uh, sanity will have been restored. The alcohol problem will be removed. We will react sanely and normally. We will find that this has happened automatically. We will see that our new attitude toward liquor has been given us without any thought or effort on our part. It just comes. That is the miracle of it. We are not fighting it, neither are we avoiding temptation. We feel though, as though we have been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We have not even sworn off. That is an extraordinary, extraordinary thing. And then it says, uh, 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 it goes on to say uh, that if I act in deference to God's wishes, that this is the correct use of self-will. Again, this goes back to being brainwashed and alcoholics anonymous. You should be so lucky or being an AA robot that this to me is a lofty goal. That the correct use of self-will is if I act in deference to what I think God's wishes are, that I'm going to be okay. Step 10. I do step 10 for me exactly the way I did step 4. I, uh, it says, what do we do about resentments? It says we write them down. So I write them down. I write my fear list and I write my sexual problems. And without step 10 for me, I, I don't think I would have stayed sober. I certainly wouldn't have been restored to sanity. The alcohol problem wouldn't be removed. And I wouldn't know. You know, our book says self-reliance was as good as far as it got us. <laughs> So it doesn't say self-reliance is totally bad all the time. It says it's good, but up to a certain point, you know. Uh, God doesn't drive parked cars. If I'm hungry and I lock myself in the closet, I'm not going to wait for God to stick a hot dog through the keyhole. i got to get out there and take some action and start the ball rolling. Um, before I left to come up here, I had uh, two resentments against two guys I sponsor. Uh one of the guys I sponsor goes to some special AA meetings, and I think he kind of panders to famous people. Right? So I'm resentful at blank, I can't tell you his name, uh, for being a judgmental star blanker. Uh, <laughs> it affects my self-esteem, pocketbook, ambition, personal relations, and sex. 
What are the defects of character that if God would remove the resentment would be gone? I'm judging them. I'm judgmental. I'm jealous if the truth be out. I had this great experience in L.A. There was a guy at a meeting I was going to who was a really famous movie star. And I thought I could help this guy. And I thought I could be a particular help to him. And it would make me look really good to my kids. <laughs> my kids would really... And I'm a man of God. I'm with God now. You know, I'm at this meeting with this guy. And I'm thinking, you know, he'll ask me to sponsor him. And my kids will be thrilled about this. So uh, he doesn't ask me to sponsor him. But a guy with one tooth with a cavity in it, he asks me to sponsor him. Right? The biggest yo-yo in the room walks up to me. Doi, 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 will you sponsor me? And I say, no. He walked away from me and I said, Redmond, buy a gun. Shoot yourself in the head. You're dead. And I tackled this guy. I mean, I realized I was dead. I said, no, I'm too busy. <laughs> the guy thought I was out of my mind because I ran after him. I knew that if I didn't sponsor him, I was going to die. You know, I grabbed him and I said, yes, yes, I'll sponsor you. I mean, I, and I realized that if I walked into that room willing to sponsor the famous guy, I had to be willing to sponsor anybody in the room. So what God did was, for the next three weeks, every idiot in the room asked me to sponsor Except the famous guy. The famous guy didn't. Every misbegotten, miscreant, wet-brained, incontinent yo-yo asked me to sponsor him in that room. Yes, yeah. Until finally, the third week, I went, oh, leave me alone. <laughs> and I became willing to, to turn it over. So, jealous. Self-servant. Retaliator. I'm an opportunist. Because if the opportunity came up for me, I'd probably take advantage of it. I'm a blackmailer because if this guy who I sponsor doesn't do it my way, I might withhold the spiritual tools a little bit just to nudge him or just to torture him a little bit because he's not doing it my way. I'm playing God. I'm unwilling to accept the fact that another child of God could be spiritually sick like me. Right? I wouldn't be mad at a spiritually sick person. The guy I sponsor is an alcoholic. He's spirit, by definition, that means he's spiritually sick. If I'm mad at someone who's spiritually sick, I'm not showing him tolerance, pity, and patience. I'm a hypocrite because I've done the same thing. I'm self-seeking, and I'm impatient. So, why do I have to write this? I'm resentful of the guy I sponsor. I have to write a 10-step. If I don't write a 10-step, I'll start being mean to this guy. This guy is very loving. He's my son. He, he shows tremendous love and attention to my children. He's a great guy, but he's not doing this my particular way, so I'm going to withhold the spiritual tools. I'm not going to give him the kind of time I give other guys on the phone. And what's going to happen is, I'm going to drink. It says there's no greater assurance against drinking than intensive work with other alcoholics. If I do not work this 10th step, I will stop working with drunks. Because drunks act like drunks. And newcomers act just like newcomers. You know, they do. Without fail. They, and and one, of, one of the things that I didn't get here, which should have been here, is unreasonable expectations. This guy is acting just like him. Now, it's another guy I was resentful at that I'm, I'm, I sponsor. And I was resentful at him for being hopeless, irresponsible, and depressive. This guy gets depressed. He gets hopeless. He stops living in today. He feels hopeless about the rest of his life. And he starts acting irresponsibly. And I'm going to be mad at him? Why am I mad at him? I'm mad at him because he's burning all my time up with his problems. That's why I'm mad. What are the defects of character? I'm self-seeking. I'm impatient. I'm controlling. And I'm self-seeking. It would be better for me if he didn't feel this way. It would be better for me if he had more hope about his life. Man. Without the 10th step, I have no 12th step. This is just for me. Because I will start treating these guys differently. I'll start punishing them 
for taking too much of my time. I'll start punishing them. And maybe fear of confrontation is better. Maybe a guy is so depressed and his sadness overwhelms me so much that I can't talk to him that, that much. I cannot be helpful to all people, but I must at least take a kindly and tolerant view of each and every one. So, for me, uh, this, this tenth step is a matter of survival. Without, again, without the tenth step, uh, uh, I got nothing. I had three fears on my list. I've been working in a Mexican restaurant, and uh, I had some self-pity, and I had was cooking with some, uh, I cook with a lot of alcohol at work. I don't have alcohol in my house. But I did have a bottle of alcohol, which I'll talk about. Um, and I had got whacked with this craving. And again, I know the difference between a craving and an obsession. Craving has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and an obsession doesn't. I, was, I had a fear of drinking. I had a fear of financial insecurity, because I did get another notice in the IRS that I do own $42,000. And, uh, which by the way, I think that just for your spiritual development, if we could divide my debt amongst this group. <laughs> just trying to take care of you guys. And, uh, and I was, uh, frightened of dying because, um, uh, from a heart attack because I'm overweight. So those are the three fears that I had. So I said, Father, I am frightened of drinking. Turn my attention to what you would have me be. And uh, what my God said to me is, tell your sponsor about it right now. Tell a couple of other people. You do have a bottle of booze to cook in the house. Get it out of the house. I followed direction. I humbly relied upon him. The second fear, I am frightened of financial insecurity. Turn my attention to what you would have me be. And the attention, <laughs> what he would have me be was, ask you guys to pay the debt. No. Well, uh, what he would have me be was to sit down and do some grassroots footwork with my wife, something that scares me a lot of going through the books and writing up budgets and doing stuff that I'm real good at being too busy at doing. Right. Uh, and the third fear, I'm frightened of dying because I'm overweight, dying of a heart attack, and the uh, uh, the direction was go to an OA meeting. I went, yeah, 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 but. Uh, so I, I'll, I'll see how I move along with that as time goes on. So this is just a, an example of a 10-step that I did uh, before coming up here because I knew that if I came up here with a, a bunch of uh, um, active resentments and fears, I might not be uh, uh, to it might not be perhaps as helpful as I could be. It, when you're trying to hear God's voice through a room packed with shit, it sounds like this. <laughs> it's very hard to hear him because he's talking to you through a room packed with crap. And I find the more that I am able to clear out that room, the more resonant and real his voice gets for me. Any questions? The question is, what do, you, uh, what do you do if you owe a dope dealer? How do you make amends to him? Um, my experience with that, one of the things I love to hear when guys are new in the program, sometimes you hear a guy come in and he says, geez, you know, I really feel, uh, I was at this party where people were using drugs and I felt really comfortable. <laughs> and I always say, well, when the police come and take you away, tell them how comfortable you are, as as they're because they really give a shit. Um, I owed uh, dope dealers when I came in, and I I paid them off. And I will tell you why I paid them off. I paid them off because I never wanted to hear from them again. Did I owe them the money? Was it the right or wrong thing to do? Number one, I don't go to a dope dealer's house to pay them off because then I'm breaking the law. I'm around. Dope. I can't be around the drugs. I don't know what the right or wrong thing is to do. I can tell you for me, I paid those guys off as quickly as I possibly could because I never, I wanted them out of my life. I wanted them gone. You know? Um, a guy at our meeting a, a couple of months ago was talking about how he, uh, 
he felt a little uncomfortable because he was at this party where these dope dealers were and everybody was using cocaine. And my grand sponsor, who's 30 years sober, 29 years sober, got up and said, you know, when Jonah got out of the belly of the whale, he didn't go back in to get his hat. You know, uh, which was, uh, uh, I, I, I had never heard that one before, but boy, that lit me up, man. You know, I thought that was, uh, pretty cool. So what the right or wrong thing is, I don't know, but I know what I did is I wanted these guys, you know, away. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I can just, uh, share with you what was right for me. The question is, is, uh, about the A step list to talk about that a bit because it says in our book that if we have made a inventory that we ought to, we from that inventory have our A step list. I read that and I was confused about it also. And the fact is, is I did not owe everybody I resented a, 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 an amends. I, I just didn't. And there were people who were not on my inventory who I owed an amends to. That was even more shocking to me. I realized after doing this that there were people I owed an apology to who I didn't resent. That I had just had, they had got caught up in the mix, you know. Um, so uh, I had to do a lot of work on that. I did my initial eight-step list, and there was a ton of names on it. And what happened was after a period of months, and I think after I stopped feeling a lot of the remorse and the overwhelming guilt. I sat down with it and I went over I read the names to my sponsor and he'd say, what, what are you going to do with this person? And I'd tell him. He wasn't telling me. And a lot of times I'd say, oh, I don't owe an amends. Or, you know, I mean, my grandmother who was in, a, uh, who, uh, was in an old age home and I never visited her and I felt oh man, I couldn't even think about it. It felt so horrible to think of her in this place and I just abandoned her. And I was kind of young at the time, but who gives a shit? I still felt bad about it. And after a while of doing the work in Alcoholics Anonymous and being helpful to other people, after an amount of time, through no direct contact with her, I went over my stuff list and I crossed her name out. I felt at peace with that thing. So my experience is that um, I, of course, they don't say in that section, they don't say you must make amends to everybody who is on your list. They just say that what they're kind of telling, you know, the way I understand it, and believe me, I think you can take any sentence in the big book and prove almost any point you want. Unfortunately, it's like the Bible in that sense. We can use it as a weapon. We can use it as a tool. It can be used any number of different ways. But they are saying that you have a list. So maybe they're saying to me, I can develop my eight-step list out of this inventory. But when I originally read it, I saw it as that my inventory is my eight-step list. And that for me was not true. Thank God, because I'd probably still be running all over the place. And you know, uh, you know, when you make those amends to people, you say you're sorry, and they don't know what the hell you're talking about. You have to, you know, you almost have to re-hurt them to let them know that you did something wrong, you know. The other thing that happened to me with my amends, which was really interesting, was except when to do so would injure them or others. I had one uh, experience with a guy who I had worked with in the television industry, and I ran into him, and I, he was not on my step list. And I realized, I remembered that I had waited till this guy left certain rooms and then backstabbed the living crap out of him when he walked out. And I stood in front of this guy, and I realized I could not tell him this that it would really hurt him, and he didn't know it. To the best of my knowledge, he didn't know how severely I had character assassinated him. So I stood in front of him, and as this guy was talking to me, I said to myself, Father, I'm here, and I'm ready to make these amends, and I really don't think I should. And they were made. I went home. I wrote his name on the list. I crossed it out, and I was clear. 
You know, I had one guy I, I stole some tapes from, and I called him up, and, and I admitted it to him, and he let me go through the entire amends, and he said, uh, they weren't my tapes. <laughs> <clears throat> so my friend Bob Lesser, who I love and who 12-stepped me in alcohol comics, he was really trying to bust my chops. <clears throat> when Bobby was new in the program, and he and I were just getting used to it, he, had, he went to this meeting in L.A., and this guy got up at this meeting, and... <laughs> He said, I just got out of the joint, man, and I'm going crazy, you know, because I'm Jewish and I can't stop talking like this. <laughs> but I've been in the joint so long, man, I can't, I can't stop, you know. And he's talking about how pissed off his family was getting that he sounded like a, a prison vato. And uh, Bob, <laughs> Bob and I have been through a lot of great stuff in sobriety, and this eight-step boy, did he roast me. And then he uh, directed me to his girlfriend who owned the tapes, and then she let me get through the whole thing and then said they weren't her tapes, but they were her tapes. They, they were having their way with me. Anybody else? Yeah. Um, the stuff about going to prison, I had stuff, uh, but I, the, uh, um, the statute of limitations was on my side. I was a pretty fortunate guy. All of my thefts, I, I wasn't available for jail. So I didn't have to, uh, I didn't have to, um, deal with that in that way. So I have no personal experience about that. It's been my experience with guys, uh, who I've sponsored, uh, you know, the, the book talks about it in a really beautiful way. It talks about this guy, the specific story in the section on 8 and 9 about a guy who had lied about a guy paying him money and didn't get a receipt. And uh, he uh, claimed the guy didn't pay him and destroyed the guy's career. And uh, this guy uh, had to make a decision of whether or not to get up in his community and admit the fact that he had done this, knowing full well that it might destroy his financial opportunities for his family and knowing that it might destroy his position. And the decision that that guy made, what happened between him and his God was he was instructed to get up in church and admit it. Now, that's this guy. I, I, really, I really do believe that if we have an honest desire to set things right that, and, and we get God involved over a period of time, because the good news here is, you, you, you know, when guys, sometimes guys, when they're making their eight-step list, they don't want to, I didn't want to put my dad down. What was I going to do? And what my sponsor pointed out to me is, Scott, work eight before you work nine. Become willing to do this thing, you know. Um, and willingness is a funny thing. If I connect willingness and humility, in step seven, I'm, I ask to I ask God to remove these. Humbly ask Him to remove these defects. Humbly is not take him if you can, big guy. Humbly isn't take him, you miserable son of a bitch. Humbly is I can't bear it anymore. You know, if I go to step eight with that, with that spirit, Father, I could go to jail. I don't know if I should go to jail. I don't know if I'd be of more use on the outside. Um, I think that if I go to God with, with some degree of willingness and openness and with a real desire to set things right, that eventually I'm going to find out what to do. I know guys, uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous, one of the guys in my home group, uh, Ran over a woman and killed her. And as I told you last night, I used to sponsor another guy who ran over a nine-year-old child and killed him. The guy who ran over the nine-year-old child 
went to jail and still couldn't get sober. The guy who ran over the woman didn't go to jail and got sober. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard a guy named Sonny Campbell's story, but he uh, wound up on death row in Folsom Prison. And now he's, uh, he's sober over, I guess, around 20 years. And, um, boy, I, I really think that this is between the individual and God. And uh, what would I have done with these robberies that I did if, if the statute of limitations wasn't on my side? I really don't know. I really don't know. I, I, I uh, the one guy who I told you about who I worked his coffee machine and went to Italy, you know, when I was operating this guy's coffee machine, I wound up sitting down and writing this guy a check for $3,600. And when I put this letter in the mail, man, I mean, the rest of this, it, it, besides the demonstration, the actual action, if I had to go to jail for a period of time, maybe going to jail would be this incredible demonstration of the power of God, like sitting down and writing a $3,600 check. Maybe not going to jail and doing some other demonstration of the power of God and being helpful in a different way. Man, I, I don't know. I don't know. That's uh, that's got to be. I think ultimately got to be between a guy and and uh, and his God. I. Uh, my sponsor and I were uh, walking to a meeting one day, and on the way uh, past this meeting, he just pointed out this place to me. He said, this is an antique store where my wife used to work, he said to me. And he said, uh, she stole so much money from this place. And I looked at Don, and I said, well, that must have been a very difficult amends for you to make. <laughs> and he said, you miserable bitch. <laughs> and did Don have to make that amend? He spent the money along with his wife. You know, uh, he uh, he didn't make those amends. I know Nancy went to Europe with me, but she didn't call that guy and <laughs> and split the check with me uh, or anything like that. Um, but uh, the the other thing I, I don't want to belabor this too much is that there, if you go to um, meetings at prisons, if you do panels at prisons, if you talk to guys who have uh, spent time in jail and gotten sober in jail and stayed sober in jail, guys who have gone to prison, have not gone to prison. There is so much experience, strength, and hope in Alcoholics Anonymous about this along these lines. You know, uh, I know we're in good company to find this stuff out. Yeah. Has that ever happened to me? In other words, have I ever paid back money to someone who owes me money? No, no, I never lent anybody anything. I never, I, I never, I never lent anybody anything. Oh, I have no idea. I, I, I just don't because I've never had a personal experience with it. I never gave anybody any money, and I never had anything to steal. So I was just busy stealing from other people and borrowing. So I've never had to. Uh, I think that spiritually, one could say. You know, I've made amends to other people who I felt owed me amends, not financial. But you see, it's a funny thing. I don't know if you guys have ever been to uh, panels at prisons or nut houses. Sometimes you'll get some middle class people going to a nut house or a prison, and they'll say, "Well, I've never been to prison, but I have a prison in my mind." <laughs> and, I, and I always go, "I'll take that one." <laughs> I I always say, "I don't know how you feel. I've never done a long hitch." I've been in jail, but I've never spent a lot of time in jail. I don't know how you feel, and I don't want to find out. But I know about alcoholism. I know what it feels to be like powerless over alcohol and live a terrible goddamn life. So 
I know what it's like to make amends to somebody who I think owes me an amends. And it says in our book, and it says it uh, magnificently, that the most difficult amends will be the most rewarding. When we make amends to somebody who we really feel owe it to us, that the payoff for that will be tremendous. Some months ago, a man that I sponsored called me up and fired me as his sponsor by leaving a message on my, my phone. What a terrible thing to get. What a terrible way to find out you're not somebody's sponsor. To be left, you know, it really made me feel horrible. And uh, I uh, sat down and I wrote a 10-step. I wrote a resentment against the guy for doing this to me. And uh, then I did step six and seven, and I asked for the relief. And my sponsor has always told me, that when you do a 10-step, do six and seven and see if there's an eighth and ninth to do. So I did six and seven, and I said, well, obviously there's no eight and nine. And I realized I had somehow hurt this guy's feeling. Yeah, but he left it to me on the machine. And I went through all of the crap, man. And I was still upset. I was waking up thinking about this guy. And then finally, I picked up the phone and I said, well, if I get his machine, I won't leave it on the machine. I'll be better than him. I'll make sure I talk to him and I'll tell him that I'm sorry. And then I realized, Scott, if he wanted to talk to you, he would have made sure he did. Be loving and kind to the guy. He doesn't want to talk to you. So I called, I got the machine, and I said, Jason, I just want to tell you, I am so sorry if I have hurt you in any way, and I was free of it. Now, did I feel that the guy owed me an amends? Yes. Did I feel that he owed me an amends more than I owed him? Yes. Did making the amends set me free? Yeah. But that's on one hand. On the other hand, I've never had to pay somebody back money who owed me money, which likens me to knowing a jail in my mind and knowing a real jail. I think me being able to empathize with it because I've done it spiritually is not quite as difficult as actually having to sit down and write that check, a very spiritual moment, actually writing the check. One more. Yeah. Are you saying that uh, well, if you have your eight steps and once I do The question is, uh, uh, can you not uh, begin step nine until you've really done step eight, or is step nine part of step eight? Is that is that the question? Yeah. I, I have found it to work every possible different way. For instance, with my father, I was willing, but I didn't know how. And it was only through the willingness that I found out how. There are a couple of women who I've had unfortunate experiences with that I am just not willing to contact. And they're just on my eighth step. And every time I look at the list, there they are. And I don't know what to do about it yet. There are uh, uh, other things where absolutely that the ninth step was the eighth step. That I didn't want to do it and I wasn't willing to do it and I wasn't willing to do it until I did it. I really understand what you're saying and I really feel that way very strongly about it. Then I had living amends. I had the amends to my wife and to my children, which were about consistency and responsibility. That was the only way I could show them I was sorry. Not a specific act, not just a sit down and a, a murmured sorry, but a living amends. You know, so my experience has been through a, a whole different series of combinations of what you're talking about. Some things I'm not willing to do yet, and I know that if I do expect to live happily or long, that eventually I'll have to do them. Uh, some things I can't because I just don't have the dough, but I am willing. Some things I haven't been willing, but I've done it anyway. And the thing I'm hearing from you, which I actually absolutely agree with, 
and I'll talk about this very briefly and we'll close uh, this session, is if I had to wait until I was absolutely, totally willing to do every one of them, I never would. And what, what the key to that is, is the steps are not a drug. Just because I do a tenth step, the opposite of resentment is not always complete acceptance and love and tolerance and pity and patience. The opposite of resentment might be the absence of murder. <laughs> I am not resentful, so I will not kill you. But you still, I'm still pissed off or annoyed. That's a good thing to not kill someone. That's a good thing. I'll settle for that some days. That the steps are not a drug, and sometimes because I have this alcoholic consciousness, I expect the feel-good button, and if I do something and I don't get that kit, because I've been bullying my feelings my whole life with alcohol and with self-will, you know, getting that adrenaline rush and bullying the way I feel, you know, with synthetic influences. And I've got to remember that this is a spiritual program. This is not a medical program, although that's part of it. And uh, the eighth step is not, it, it can't be that perfect therapeutic ideal of I'm, I'll wait till I'm totally willing. Or for me with the third step, that if I don't, if I'm not fully, really letting God operate my life, I can't move on with the rest of the steps. Sometimes i got to just trust. There is a solution. None of us like leveling a part of the confession of shortcomings. We saw that it worked in others, and we went ahead with it yesterday. At, uh, anyway, and let's go eat lunch. Sorry, guys. I need to talk to them.